0: I want to begin today's lesson, which I entitled Thus Sayeth the Lord, with a bit of a discussion on how God talks to us. There are certain questions in Christianity and in life that you need to lock down. You need to sort it out in your head and figure out where you really stand and then hold to it. One of those questions is things like, is God good? You have to really come to that understanding because sometimes you think he is and sometimes you don't think he is. Well, either he is or he isn't. So you've got to sort in your mind, is God good all the time? That's, that's a question like that. The question for this morning is simply this. Is God's discipline loving? That's what you have to sort out in your mind. Because here's how the answer normally goes. It goes, if it's on someone else, yes, very loving. If it's on me, not so much so, okay? Because the idea is you can totally see it in perspective. If God's correcting someone else, you're like, oh, he loves them so much that he had to throw them under the bus, right? But for us, when he throws us under the bus, we're horrified. God, you hate me. You don't love me. How could you abandon me like this? And we keep changing our opinion as to whether or not God's discipline is loving or not. Well, either it is or it isn't make a call and if so it is consistently so the problem is is that when god speaks sometimes we're afraid of what he's going to say we're afraid of what he's going to say because we're afraid of what he's going to do what's going to be the content how is he going to convey that message we're not the only ones that have wrestled with that would you agree that perhaps the majority of america may believe that God exists, but they certainly don't want to talk to him. They certainly don't want him talking to them. Well, that happened in the nation of Israel, and it was pretty well displayed in the story we're about to read. Now, you understand, this is around the time when God was going to bring the Ten Commandments to Israel, He's about to give his law to his people. He's up on Mount Sinai. It's this crazy scenario. There's this literal mountain, and it's thunder and lightning and smoke and fire, and it's all crazy. And down at the bottom on the base camp at the bottom of the mountain is the nation of Israel all gathered together, and they're waiting to hear what God's going to say. And that's where we pick up our story this morning, Exodus chapter 20, verse 18. It begins like this. When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. And they stayed at a what? A distance. And they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. Can you imagine a time when people would rather hear from man than from God himself? You may have to only think about last week when you would much rather hear the words of Max Lucado than hear the words in Scripture. Because you're afraid of what you'll read. You're afraid of what you'll hear. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid for God has come to what? Test you. So that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. So the big scary firework show was for whose benefit? The people, it certainly was not for God's benefit. He was doing it for their benefit as a motivator. Verse 21, check this out. The people remained at a what? A distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. So where was God? In the scary place, yeah? He's in this thick darkness. He's in that smoke, that fire. But where are all the people? Way back here. They're not going anywhere near that guy. That is freaky in there. I'm not going in there. Problem is, now you're separate from God. Would you rather remain separate from God or go into the scary place? The majority of people would rather remain separate from God. But this Moses guy marches right in. Is he not merely an Israelite, just like everybody else? Is he not just a man? He's not a superhero. He's a guy. Why is this guy marching in boldly when everyone else is scared to death and staying back? What does he know that they don't know? Well, man, the more you read about this Moses guy, it just gets worse. Go to the right in your Bibles, 10 pages, page 64. Exodus chapter 33, verse 7. We pick up the story a little bit further down. In history, Exodus chapter 33, verse 7 says this. Now, Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud, that's God's presence, would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to his tent. And the Lord would speak to Moses, what? Face to face. That's right. Two of you are reading along. Praise the Lord. As a man speaks with his what? Friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young age, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. So Moses not only approaches into the scary darkness, but now you have him engaging with God face to face as with a friend. Well, in the world, does he know that they don't know? Because he seems to be the only one that's engaging with God in this manner. Let me ask you this. Does God always yell? Does he sometimes yell? Well, yeah, certainly he does. Sometimes he's pretty scary, yeah? But does he always do that? No. Why? What makes the difference? There's a story that impacted me uh, pretty greatly. It was about nine years ago. I have a niece who's 10 years old, and when she was about one years old, she's hanging on her dad's neck. And I love kids, okay? I'm a big, huge kid lover. And I love to get down on their level. And I'm the kind of guy that if you are a child and you bring a stuffed animal into my presence, I will meet your stuffed animal. Okay. I will have to introduce myself to your stuffed animal. I want to know what his name is or her name. And that way I know that I'm loving on your best friend. Does that make sense? I get down on their level and I'm like, Hey, what are you? how are you doing? And all the kids like to run around and give me hugs here at church. I love that kind of stuff. So, sure enough, here comes my niece, the the first child from this brother and sister in law, and I wanted her so bad to like me. I wanted to be like the best uncle ever. So, she walks into the house, and I've only been around her a couple times, and I went, Hey, how you doing? Scared the living daylights out of her. My voice is huge, it was indoors, she had just woken up, and it was like, Ah, what are you doing in my face? You're scary. And I'll never forget what my brother-in-law said as he was holding her, and he he and I have a great relationship. He goes, don't worry, honey, I wouldn't want to talk to him if he talked to me like that either. I was like, oh, totally hurt my heart. I was like, I just scared the little one. Oh, I feel terrible. Never forgot this, nine years, still remember the story. What I began to lock into my mind is something that I knew, but then I had to put into practice, and that is that all children are different. Not only that, but the time of the day in which you engage with children are different. All their personalities are different and different periods in their life. They're very different. Sometimes you got to be the loud, crazy guy. Otherwise, you think you're boring, right? And there's other times when you got to whisper real quiet. You got to go, hey, honey, how you doing? What's going on? Is that your little pink bear? What's his name? That kind of stuff. There's sometimes when you joke around, you're the gruff one, you're teasing them and you're laughing. There's times when you're kind of shielding your face and pretending like you're not paying attention to them to get their attention. There's a bunch of different tricks. You do it different based on what the child needs at the time, yeah? God does the same thing. God doesn't always yell. As a matter of fact, the majority of the time, he does not. As a matter of fact, there's a story that describes that if you go to the right in your Bibles a little further. First Kings chapter 19, verse 7, page 255. The Bible's handed to you. 255. 1 Kings chapter 19 verse 7. 1 Kings comes right before 2 Kings. Praise the Lord. I'm here all day. Thank you. 1 Kings chapter 19 verse 7. Let me give you a little setup on this one. This is one of the coolest stories in in the Bible, uh, in my opinion. I'm a big fan of Elijah. Elijah is a really great prophet. In the Old Testament, I've told this story a million times, but it's just its astounding. If I had the ability to do this, this would be the coolest thing in my whole life. Right after I do this, then I could just die because it would be so amazing. Here's what happened, is that Elijah was so sick and tired of this whole, my God's right, no, my God's right. Oh, my God's bigger than your God. My God can beat up your God. Because everybody had their view of how God was and whose God was better. So he finally said, let's do a showdown like he calls up cnn he calls up fox news he calls up everybody says bring your cameras we're going head to head let's do this you bring your god i'll bring my god we'll have a cage match let's go Whoever wins, right? No holds barred. Let's go for this. And he said, all right, I'm going to do it in front of everybody. You bring all your guys. So 450 prophets of the bad guy, the fake God, they show up on one side. And Elijah's all by himself on the other side. And they're on the top of a mountain. It's all dramatic. Everybody's gathered around and they're all trying to watch this. And he said, all right, here's how it's going to go. Sick and tired of fighting about this? You make an altar, I make an altar. You pray to your God, I pray to my God. ever God responds by fire, that's the one that will serve. Are we all clear on the rules? Everyone said, all right. He said, all right, I'll let you go first. So sure enough, all day long, they're doing their crazy little gig, and they're trying to get their God to respond, who's not really real. So like every good Christian, he begins to make fun of them. Which <laughs> That whole sarcastic part is funny to me, if you ever read the story. But anyway, he's teasing them. Mess with them. He goes, all right, are you guys done now? All right, fine. Your God didn't show. Are we all clear on that? All right, great. Now, it's my turn, but before I do this, I don't want you guys whining after the whole thing. Oh, your your thing just spontaneously combusted. It wasn't really God, okay? I don't want you to think that, like, the sunlight ricocheted off my, sun, my, my lenses and my glasses that somehow... All right, so we're going to make sure it's not going to accidentally catch on fire. I want a bunch of you to grab a bunch of water. I want you to pour it all over this thing. Okay. Now, is it fully saturated? Are we all clear that it's not going to accidentally catch on fire? Okay, cool. God, show him you're real. Boom. Heaven rips open. Lightning fires right out of the sky. Bam. Nails this thing. Burns up everything, including all the water around it. And he said, so there. Man, how cool is that? I would love that. It's just like, shut down on you, right? It was like, ha-ha! And then he orders that all the bad guys get killed. It's like this crazy massacre. It's just this horrible, weird, crazy view and scene. And on, sure enough, there was a king at the time that hated his guts. His wife hated him even more. His wife's name was Jezebel. She wanted him dead. She puts a price out on his head and, and is said that he's going to be killed. He immediately, from that location, runs into hiding in depression. And fear. you're like, what? What do you mean? Didn't you just do the showdown? I mean, you're like a regular guy and you asked for fire and it came out of the sky. That's pretty cool. What do you mean you're scared that she's going to kill you? Is that not realistic? See, one of the cool things about the Bible and Christianity is nobody writes a story like that. You always have your hero be big and bad. You don't have your hero all of a sudden go into a total panic and meltdown. This guy just takes off running and running and running to the point of exhaustion. And then he runs even more and he goes and he hides in a cave because he's so scared that he's going to die. Could we be on the top of a mountain one day and at the bottom of the depths of the sea the next? Sure can. And that's what happened. And that's where we pick up our story. First Kings chapter 19 verse 7. The angel of the Lord came back a second time, and he touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up, and he ate, and he drank. And strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave, and he spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, and he said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenants. They broke down your altars. They put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, all right, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for Yahweh is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And the voice said to him, Now then, what are you doing here, Elijah? And they had a talk. The talk went something like this. Well, they're going to kill me, and I'm the only one left, and I barely escaped. And God goes, there are thousands of prophets still living. You really think you're the only one. Am I not still God? Come on, man. Does God always shout? No, you see, sometimes all that shouting and that craziness and the earthquake and the wind and the fire and the drama and all the upheaval, sometimes that's not God at all. Sometimes it's after all that stuff passes by, and there's a quiet little voice, and God goes, what's going on? Well, you'll never believe it. Oh, no, no, no. And we get all excited. He said, I want to ask you again. All right, I'll meet your needs. What are you doing here again? That gentle, still, small voice. Let me tell you something I believe very strongly, and you can argue with me because you can sit there and go, show me exactly in Scripture where it happens. I don't know kind of seems to be all through it but this is something i believe very strongly and that is i believe that if god needs to get you a message for you to alter to change if he needs to convict you in the areas of wickedness or sin if he is looking at something that is unhealthy in your life and he wants to root it out i suggest to you that he will tap you on the shoulder quietly I believe that he will warn you over and over and over again, very gently, very quietly, very peacefully, just between the two of you. Because I believe that it is God's desire to keep a matter between the two of you unless it is unable to be done. I believe that God does not want to go public. I believe that God does not want to humiliate you. I believe that God does not want to embarrass you. God does not want to cause this great tumult and show all your neighbors how screwed up you really are. I believe it's God's desire, just like a wonderful parent, to have a talk with you first. You guys, what would you do if you had a small child? They come home from a friend's house and they have a toy in their pocket that you know you didn't buy. What do you do? Do you you immediately throw open the floodlights, shove them out in the cold, and start screaming to your neighbors that you need to start stoning your children because they're horrible thieves? Come on. That's not how you treat a child. That's not a good parent. What do you do? You usually get down on their level depending on how old they are, and you say, honey, what do you got in your pocket? And they go, a Barbie head. (laughs) And you go, honey, why do you have a Barbie head in your pocket? Because I like it. Okay. Where'd you get the Barbie head? From Jennifer's house. Did you say you could have it? Kind of. Okay. Did she say you could take it home? No. Well, then why'd you take it home? Because I like it. But do you understand that you're not allowed to take things that aren't yours? You do understand that that's wrong. Yeah. And she starts to cry. But I didn't, I didn't, doesn't even know what to say. That's what good parents do. They talk with their kids gently one-on-one. And that's what I believe God is doing with us. I believe that God is tapping you on the shoulder and going, why are you doing that? That's not you. Come on. That's not how I built you. I didn't die on the cross so that we could walk like this. I didn't ask for you to get into bondage, into slavery, into an addiction. Come on. This is not what my kids do. With the, no. Why are you spending so much time there? Why do you want to be with them so badly? Why does that dominate your thoughts so much? Why is that more important than me? I just keep whispering to you. I keep telling you, can we please change? This is not healthy for you. It's not good. And if you continue on this path, it's going to lead you into trouble. No, I don't want to get anyone else involved in this. No, I don't want to get loud. I want to be very gentle with you, but you're not listening to me. So, yes, I'm going to kick up the volume a little bit, but I'm warning you right now. I don't want to go public. Let me ask you a question. Who looks bad when it goes public? Well... Answer it very honestly. When the sheep are messed up, who does it reflect poorly on? The shepherd. Do you understand if God goes public with your sin, he takes the hit. It's not for his benefit. What, you think he's proud of you? You think that that makes him look good? You think he enjoys the idea? Somehow we get this stupid idea that God is up there trying to figure out a way to humiliate us. That he gets some great joy out of embarrassing you. No, that's not the heart of God. God would much rather deal with it in a quiet family manner. I believe that he's so badly like a good parent wants to whisper to you and say, can we please correct this? But yeah, if you shut off the alarm clock enough times and finally throw it and smash it against the wall, he's got to go public. But I don't think he wants to. Are there any warnings that God has been tapping you on the shoulder about? Stuff that he's been whispering to you for years? Going, that's going to get you in trouble. It's going to mess with you. Don't do it. Walk away. Don't handle that. You keep toying with it. Don't play with fire. Is any of that stuff going on with you? I know he taps on me like that. Will you ever be able to hear it? Will you be resistant to it? Have you been resistant to it? Because he's trying to whisper. And sometimes it's flat out rebellion where it goes head to head. And there are some of us, that are so arrogant to believe that we get to dictate to God what sins will be addressed and which ones won't. For so that, I have a story. It's a story that's been overused by pastors everywhere, but I've only told it once before and it was years ago, so deal with it. Here we go one of my favorites so i'm sharing it two battleships assigned to the training squadron had been at sea on maneuvers in heavy weather for several days i was serving on the lead battleship and was on watch on the bridge as night fell the visibility was poor with patchy fog so the captain remained on the bridge keeping an eye on all the activities shortly after dark the lookout on the wing reported light bearing on the starboard bow is it steady or moving astern the captain called out and the lookout replied steady captain Which meant that we were on a dangerous collision course with that ship. The captain then called to the signal man Signal the ship. We're on a collision course. Advise you change course 20 degrees. And back came the signal. Advisable for you to change course 20 degrees. The captain said, Send this. I'm a captain. Change course 20 degrees. Reply came, I'm a seaman, second class. You better change course 20 degrees. By that time, the captain was furious, and he spat out, send this. I'm a battleship. Change course 20 degrees. And back came the flashing light. I'm a lighthouse. (laughs) So we changed course. (laughs) Listen, this is the year of doing stuff. This is a year of world impact. This is a year of justice. And God wants to begin by cleaning out the house of God. And he wants to begin by whispering to you that you and I have injustice and corruption in our lives. And he's going to try to tell us that quietly. And if we do not respond to the whisperings of God, he will go public and expose us. And I believe that it is our challenge. It is our call to respond to his whisperings while it is still today. that we can respond to his call while it's still the day of salvation, while it can still be heard. And that, I believe, is the challenge to Israel. But make no mistake, the fill in the blank is true. We must do something. It is this. From what injustice must our country or our household repent? From what injustice must our country or our household repent? Would you turn with me to the book of Amos? Amos chapter 7, verse 1, page 651 in the Bible's handed to you. Amos chapter 7, verse 1. I'll read the first three verses and then we'll pray for the word. Amos chapter 7, verse 1, page 651. It begins like this. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me, Amos said. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested. And just as the second crop was coming up, when they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive for he is so small? So the Lord relented. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you have res- relented. You've changed your course for us many, many times, though we deserve death, though we deserved punishment, though we deserve judgment. You have relented time and time again, and we have not been destroyed. You've tapped us on the shoulder, you whispered to us, You've tried to get our attention. And we have swatted you away. I know you don't want to go public, Lord. I know your desire is that we would alter our hearts in view of your love. May we do that today in Jesus' name. Amen. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. That means that we're talking about a vision, right? A vision, which is, I don't know if you've ever had a vision, but if you're having a whole bunch of them, you need to up your meds. Okay, the deal is is a vision is like a daytime dream where you think you're sleeping. You see something that carries out in front of you or plays in front of you almost like a dream state where you begin to see something that God reveals to you that either will happen or is in the process of happening. That happened to Amos. As a matter of fact, he has a number of visions in the passage that we're about to study today, likely happening with years in between, not likely back to back. But this is what he saw. He said, this is what the sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts. Locusts are big old grasshopper cricket looking things. And the word here in Hebrew is is the, that locust in a larva stage or a caterpillar stage that would creep along the ground and eat up vegetation. The locusts were being prepared to attack when? After the king's share had been harvested and just as the second crop was coming up. Now, to us, that doesn't mean anything. To an agricultural society, it's very significant. Here's why. When you are an agricultural nation that is owned by another, you have taxes to pay. You have tribute to pay. So you go through and you, you plant the first crop, and you go through and you cut it all down, and you gather in your harvest, and then all of that goes to the king that you serve. Then you plant another one, or you allow the second one to grow up before the hot time of the year, and that's what you get to live off of. So after they had already paid their taxes and they were about to have the crop where they were going to live on it for the rest of the year, that's when the locusts came and ate everything. It means it's too late to plant another one. It means now you're done for the year. You have no food coming. Do you understand how dramatic that is? When they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, meaning it was so extreme, Amos cried out in an emotional response. He said, Sovereign Lord, forgive you understand the issue was not bugs. The issue is sin. So he knew that that's where it had to be addressed. Forgive them their sin. Don't do this. How can Jacob survive? Now, if you remember, Jacob's the name of the father of the 12 sons that were the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And so he's referring to the fact that remember the Israel that you built, Lord. How can he survive? He is so small as a nation. So the Lord relented. This will not happen, the Lord said. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me. Now we have number two vision. The sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land. The great deep is what we would refer to as the water table. The the water underneath the soil that that causes the springs to pour out. The intense drought or the burning was so ferocious that it even dried up the source of the water. So there was no hope for water to come. Again, then I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the Sovereign Lord said. Okay, so twice God said this is going to happen, and then it didn't happen. Let me ask you a question. Can you change the mind of God? There are four verses specifically in Scripture that say that you cannot Why? Because to change someone's mind means that they get new information that they didn't have before. God is omniscient. He knows everything. So, no, you cannot give him new information. You're not going to pray something and he's going to go, dang, that's a great point. I didn't even thought of that. That's so weird. I should totally do something different. Okay, no, that's not going to happen. And yet the Bible is full of stories of intercession, Full of stories. You think about Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, God was going to go in and destroy it. So all of a sudden, he gets in this debate with Abraham. And Abraham's like, Where are you going? He goes, Well, I'm going to go kill a whole bunch of people. He's like, Well, hold on. What if there's like 50 righteous people there? And he's like, Okay, I won't kill them. He goes, Well, what if there's like 40? All right, I won't kill them if there's 40. Well, okay, so what if there's 30? And they go through this debate back and forth. And then God goes, All right. And he keeps altering his process. Then he got Moses. Who finally, God is so frustrated with the people of Israel, he says to Moses, I'm going to kill them all and start over. And Moses goes, No, you can't do that. That's going to make you look terrible. No. You got to let that one go. And God goes, All right. You're like, What? What do you mean? It's like story after story, you got the situation where it says that in some way you're changing the outcome events, that your prayers are altering the course of history. You go, so, so what is it? Are we changing the mind of God? Let me tell you, it's simply this way. If God is amazing enough to answer prayers, don't you think he's good enough to determine how they should be answered? For example, let's say that I'm going to answer the prayer, but not until you pray it. Because I have the answer over here, but I'm going to ricochet off you. So I'm going to hold off the answer until you pull the trigger. Am I allowed to do that as God? Am I allowed to dictate how the answer is going to come? Of course I can do that. So why would I do that? Well, because now you're involved. Now you care about you, and you're going to get the answer to the prayer, but now you prayed for him, so now you guys are connected, and I was always going to answer the prayer anyway, but I'm not going to pull the trigger until you go. Am I allowed to do that? In other words, the point is, God's ways are way bigger than ours. We're not going to understand how this all works. As a matter of fact, when the disciples talked to Jesus about how to pray, he told them a really weird story. You remember? He said, all right, so quick story. There's this unjust judge. There's this guy who doesn't like God. He doesn't like man. He's a complete jerk. And he's in charge of justice. Well, there's this lady that needed her case heard in court, and he didn't want anything to do with her. Then she nagged him to death to where he finally said, all right, I'll give you justice. Pray like that. You're like, what? That's a horrible story. I'm supposed to nag God? Is that what you're telling me? And Jesus goes, yeah. Why? He didn't tell him why. So we sit there and fight about it. Well, wait a second. Should I even pray about this? Because maybe God already knows the answer. Maybe I should bother and not even bother praying. Because, oh my gosh, what if I pray the wrong thing? What if I can't get it done? What if he's not going to do the prayer unless I pray? What if I don't remember how to pray? I told somebody that I was going to pray and I didn't pray for it. What happened? Oh no. And we get all this big, huge debacle where we're trying to sort out the mind of God and how we should pray. It's ridiculous. Here's the simple fact. It says, pray like Jesus prayed. Right? How did Jesus pray? He had a really famous prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember that? Right before he went on the cross. He goes into the garden and he said, Father, is there any way we could bypass the whole cross thing? That'd be great. But, not my will, but yours be done. That's how you pray. Because you pray for the outcome that you see. You pray for what is wise. You pray for what is best in your mind, but you need to realize that God is God. And you back off and say, I don't know, but Lord, please answer my prayer. Amen. We move on. He said this, this is what he showed me. And we now have a third vision. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. And the Lord said, look, I'm setting a plumb line among my people, Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed, and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. What's the plumb line? Uh, I don't know necessarily if they're used all that much today. It's kind of an ancient ruler concept, but it's very simple. If you have a weight on the end of a string, it makes the string straight. Are we all following that? And then you hold it up against something, and you figure out if it's straight. It's not rocket science. So you hold it up against a wall, and he said originally he was standing next to a wall that had originally been what? Built absolutely straight, built true to plumb. In other words, he's talking about the nation of Israel. When he first started the nation, he told Abraham, leave the place where you're living. Go where I asked you to go. Be obedient. And Abraham said what? Okay. And everything was cool. Everything was perfect. Just like in the Garden of Eden. Be in the garden where I want you to be. Love on me. Say yes to me. And everything was perfect. But then they went askew so did Israel. And when something is not straight, it's crooked. So God goes, I'm going to hold a string in the middle of the people of Israel, and you're going to see how crooked you really are. And because you're crooked, I will come with judgment. And that's where we pick up the story. One side note, one of the reasons I believe that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord in the end is because you and I are not graded on a curve. What you really think that you're held up, And you're going to get in heaven because your righteousness is better than mine? Or are you mistaken? You're going to be held up against the pure and faultless Son of God. You've never felt so crooked. But praise God, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, He handled that on the cross. And now the Father sees you, and you look an awful lot like Jesus. And you look perfect. Amos chapter 7, verse 10. Then Amaziah... That's a guy. Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, he's the high priest of Israel at the time, the northern portion. Their worship center was at a city called Bethel, and it was half idolatrous, half legit. It was kind of mixed up. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to the king, Jeroboam of Israel. He said, Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words, for this is what Amos is saying Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, get out, you seer, meaning you prophet. Go back south to the land of Judah where you live. Earn your bread there, suggesting he's doing it only for money. And do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel, because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. In other words, you're messing with a boat. You're rocking it. Knock it off. Get out of here. We don't want to hear your bad news. We don't want to hear what you're saying from God. You're done. Walk away. Amos answered Amaziah, hold on a second. I was neither a prophet nor a prophet's son, meaning I didn't learn this. I wasn't born into this. I didn't even want to do this. I'm not a prophet. I was a shepherd for crying out loud. I took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and he said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now then, you hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and stop preaching against the house of Isaac. Therefore... This is what the Lord says. Your wife's going to become a prostitute in the city. Your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be measured and divided up, and you yourself will die in a pagan country, and Israel will certainly go into exile away from their native land. So there. So there's not in the original text. I added that. That is the advanced revised version. (laughs) By the way, for crying out loud, it's not in the original text either. Moving on. Here's all I want you to know. Don't kill the messenger. Yeah? Next time your non-believing coworker that knows nothing about Jesus Christ walks up to you and goes, "Really, you're a Christian? That's so weird. I totally couldn't tell." Don't blame him. You're the problem. We always want to shift the blame, right? Oh, what? You brought the message that made me feel bad? What is your fault? Don't blame the messenger. Maybe God's trying to whisper to you. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. We now have a fourth vision. A basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos? He said, a basket of ripe fruit. I answered. Then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere in silence. Hear this, you who trample the needy. And do away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over that we can sell grain? And when will the Sabbath be ended that we can market wheat? Skimping the measure, boosting the price, cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, I will not forget anything they've done. Why is God mad? Because they're corrupt. And all corruption begins With priorities out of whack. How are your priorities? They were saying things like, Gosh, when's this whole God thing going to be done? I got work to do. You're killing me. I got email to handle. Is church really going long? Are you serious? Come on. Okay, we're burning daylight, people. Come on. I got to make some money here. What do you think? My competitors are taking off Sunday? I gave you an hour and a half, God. Deal with it. Do you see what I'm saying? You understand the priorities are out of whack here. The answer should be Lord, I want to sit at your feet all day long, but I know I have to go to work. You understand the Mary and Martha story? Mary had it right, Martha had it wrong. He says this Will not the land tremble for this, and all who live in it mourn? The whole land will rise like the Nile, it will be stirred, and then will sink like the river in Egypt. Which, by the way, year in, year out, the Nile actually raises and lowers 20 feet. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. That's called an eclipse. I will turn your religious feast into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son who has died, and at the end, like a bitter day. The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the lovely young women and the strong young men will faint because of thirst. They who swear by the shame of Samaria or say, As surely as your God lives, O Dan, or as surely as the God of Beersheba lives, they will fall never to rise again. What's his message? He didn't want to hear my whisperings. He shut off my alarm. He threw it against the wall. I'm not talking anymore. I will send a famine throughout the land that even when you want to hear from me, I will not speak. And indeed... 60 years after these words the Assyrians swept through in 722 BC and devoured the north 586 BC the south was wiped out by the Babylonians and then became the time between the testaments when Malachi closes and Matthew opens is a 400 year long period called the period of silence and God goes oh you want to hear me now do you I'm not talking We're done having this conversation. Here's the challenge. There's something maybe that God's been whispering to you, trying to get your attention, trying to get you to address. You keep going, it's not a big deal, don't deal with that. Push it off, ignore that, and God keeps talking to you patiently. He's so incredibly patient. He's so incredibly loving. He just keeps tapping. And he goes, you do understand that I love you too much to leave you like this, right? You do understand I will turn up the heat for your benefit. And you do understand that if necessary, I will go public, that you might be restored. But I don't want to. Call on the Lord while it is today. Call on the Lord while it is the day of salvation. Call on the Lord while his voice may be heard. While he's still whispering. While he's calling out to you and saying, please make an adjustment. Please change your ways. For there may come a day when his voice will silence. And in that day, it's too late. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, your love and patience for us is astounding. How in the world you can keep sticking in there and tapping us so quietly when we're in blatant rebellion against you. We know what your word says, we're just not doing it. And yet you are patient with us. I don't get that. I don't know why you can be so loving. I don't even know how you can handle it. And yet you do. Just like a wonderful dad, you whisper down to us and say, what do you got in your pocket? Sometimes, Lord, we don't even know why we're doing it just seems to be the way that we live it seems to be the habits we know but they're so destructive lord give us the strength and courage to walk with you back into the darkness to open up that little chamber underneath the stairs of our heart the place where the garbage is and we say jesus please take out that trash as much as i want to hang on to it i know it's going to hurt me And may we let it go. In Jesus' name. Amen.